Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Alex Andreo. Let's meet this week's panel. First up, it's I columnist Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. Hello. Ian, the government claims the United Kingdom is a global leader on LGBT rights. Its upcoming international Safe to Be Me conference has now been cancelled after over 100 LGBT plus organisations said they would boycott it. What exactly happened? A sort of rolling catastrophe, really. <laughs> um, so the Tories said they were going to ban conversion therapy for gay and trans people. Um, they then U-turned on it. And faced with very severe objections on the Tory side, then did a U-turn on the U-turn, except that they did so by driving a wedge between the LGB and the T. So banning conversion therapy for gay people, lesbians, etc., but not for trans people. I think there's something quite interesting about the way they've been talking about this issue over the last couple of weeks, really, Mm. which indicates... Uh, the start of a thought, you would have thought in number 10, of, no, we might be able to do something with this yeah. at the general election. You saw um, Boris Johnson come on stage with Tory MPs at the Park Plaza Hotel and do a joke about, hello, ladies and gentlemen, or as Keir Starmer would say, people designated men and female at birth, blah, blah, blah. Um, it suggests that they look at Starmer, who has a sort of, to be fair, a kind of look of, robotic fear in his eyes whenever he's asked these <laughs> questions. And these appalling kind of gotcha breakfast morning, you know, what if a woman with a penis is at a blah, 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 blah. We know how those go. He does look afraid. And I suspect the number 10 think we can hurt them with this. I think they've overestimated that. You look at the way that polling works. Mm. Most of the public actually have quite nuanced views on this issue and they don't give it a lot of importance in terms of their politics. But probably Tory HQ thinks... Labour might just eat itself alive for a bit on this issue if we just keep on prodding away and it will cause divisions within the party, take up bandwidth. And I suspect, possible for any of us to tell, I suspect that that's at the heart of how this series Mm. of events took place. It's interesting. Johnson challenged in the pool interview on Wednesday, Mm -hmm. basically said, well, I, I hadn't really considered it fully. And I just thought you'd think you'd consider it fully before making the promise Mm -hmm. to ban it. Rather than, I think it was it was made the time to deliver it. It was made that made the promise. Yeah, um, I think, but you know, but they were oh, still no, saying no, we were no, going to no, push John, ahead. No, no, no. John reiterated it right. because none of the parties had it in their manifestos. So uh, th- basically, news asked all of them, and all of them except Brexit mm-hmm, committed mm-hmm, to it. So mm-hmm. he had committed to it. In his way, that's his cowardly way of doing the Starmer thing of just like we're just I don't, I don't really want to have to deal with this right now <laughs> because they know what you know what a firestorm it, it typically is. Yes, the government literature claimed the UK would use the conference to lead the world by example. So if you're watching world, this is what not to do. Um, Ros Taylor is editor of the LSC's COVID-19 blog. Hello, Ros. Hello, Alex. Um, Ros, the first round of France's presidential election is this Sunday, unbelievably, April the 10th. It's looking like a runoff between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen. How close is the contest? It's much closer than most people thought it would be. Um, this has come as a surprise, as a surprise, I think, to Macron, who, a little bit like Johnson in his own way, assumed that his leadership on Russia and the uh, invasion of Ukraine would boost him in the polls. Mm-hmm. It hasn't done that. Instead, what he's had is Marine Le Pen, his opponent, uh, running on 
cost of living, which is a big issue in France at the moment, and really just talking about that. And that has very much struck a chord with the French public. She has effectively managed to detoxify for many people what was the National Front and is now called uh, the Rassemblement National. It's not mm -hmm. called the National Front anymore. And she has also had the advantage of having Eric Zemmour in the race, who is further to the right than she is and has a more, shall we say, sinister air than she does as well. He is so very extreme on immigration. He wants to send people who've arrived in France back. He's very much running on cultural issues. She, on the other hand, has very much stuck with practical cost of fuel, these, these, these kind of domestic bread and butter issues and presented herself as a normal, middle-aged, cat-loving French woman. And it has worked. And so Who now, quite likes Putin, by the by. Yeah, but that she's managed. She basically hasn't talked Just about that. Just hasn't come up. Has and it? she, well, it hasn't from her very much. And and one of the reasons it hasn't is that she basically hasn't been anti-Ukrainian refugees coming to France. I mean, France, like the rest of the EU, uh, has let in Ukrainian refugees without a visa, and mm. she said she's okay with that. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's, you, you can go after her on the basis of her funding, absolutely. But the French public don't seem very interested in doing that. Right. And, and when we say close, what are we talking about? What sort of polling figures are we talking about in a runoff between the two of them? It's very hard to know because, of course, there are all the other candidates yeah. who are, and there are many of them who are running. A big question will be where the votes are for the left winger Mélenchon go. Mm -hmm. um, now, naturally, you wouldn't think that they would go to a right winger, but a lot of the people who support him are worried about the cost of living. So yeah. perhaps they will. We don't know whether they, they'll go for Macron or whether they're so fed up with the state of France that they want to make a statement. Yeah. So it could be very close. We could be talking even about a 52-48 Situation. Oh, no, not the cursed <laughs> ratio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 50 to 48 for Macron, I hope. We hope, but moment, we can't yeah. be absolutely sure of that, the way the polls are going. Right. Our guest this week is the host of the Political Party podcast and currently touring with his show Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right. According to Times journalist Alex Massey, he received a ringing endorsement from an audience member who walked out saying, I'm Scottish and you're an asshole." <laughs> Matt Ford, welcome. <laughs> yeah, I didn't challenge either two of those points. I think he was absolutely right on both. He was frankly correct. <laughs> Matt, last week, so a pretty extreme example of heckling involving Will Smith and Chris Rock at the Oscars. Has a heckler ever attempted to lamp you one? I don't think they have. I mean, heckling at, at, at sort of tour shows is quite rare. I mean, in comedy clubs on a Friday, Saturday night, it probably still happens. But on the whole, it's not something that's really affected me. So this guy, last week, as the title of my tour suggests, I take the mick out of every political party. And when I'm in Scotland, I take the advantage of, of ripping the piss out of the SNP. And I'd literally, <laughs> I deliberately obviously left it towards the end of the show because I was doing a bit of local. <laughs> and um, about an hour and a half in, this guy literally sat at the front. And if anyone's been to the stand in Edinburgh, they'll know it's a claustrophobic comedy club. Like the, the front row is literally almost physically touching you. We've been laughing throughout the whole thing. Anyway, I get to the SMP bit. I don't even get to do any of the jokes. I just mention this very fiasco. <laughs> and he starts putting his mask on. And I was like, he stood up. And I always check because the thing is, the worst thing, and it's happened to me so many times when you go, 
you know, you hear a bit of noise and you wrongly presume that someone's being hostile and then it turns out they're not very well or whatever it is. So I, I let it sort of go for a bit and then he stands up. So he's like eye to eye with me and he's a strong lad. Oh, he was huge. He was eight foot and built like a brick shitter. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> there were five of them. And uh, he, I said, uh, are you going to the toilet or do you work in the shipping industry? And this is triggering for you. And he just looked at me right in the eye and went, I'm Scottish. And you're an asshole. And then <laughs> he then had to walk out of a venue where the tables and chairs were all quite tightly packed. So it took him a while to sort of get <laughs> But it was an amazing, you know, it was a real gift because it, it was such a funny thing to happen. So I think people were just shocked and then it galvanized yeah. everyone else. So other people who may well have been annoyed with what I was about to say um, it were kind of brought on side. So it did me a favor. Keep Nicholas Sturgeon out your fucking mouth. <laughs> you know what? I wish I had thought of that. And I'm ashamed to say I didn't. Nor did I think of that at anything. The other Scottish dates I did on the Sums of Good Night. <laughs> this week, happy birthday, Sir Keir. Two years of Starmer leadership of the Labour Party hasn't been flown by. But is he a hit or a flop? With Orban securing another term in Hungary, we look at the ramifications of the ebb and flow of populism for Europe. Nadine Dorries is putting Channel 4 up for sale. Was it something they said? And as the government own goals continue to pile up, Tory MP Steve Bryan urges honesty. But is that likely? Finally, as Sue Gray packs up her karaoke machine in our extra bit for Patreon backers, we ask our panel what their karaoke tune would be and which politician they'd like to do it with. Sorry, to duet with. <laughs> All that and more in today's show, after a word from Rose. A big thanks to everyone who joined us at the Leeds City Varieties on Sunday last week. Our next outing is a summary trip to the Old Market Theatre in Hove with me, Ian, Dorian and Minnie. All tickets are on general sale now. Patreon people get a discount on all tickets. So search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast and sign up for VIP access. We'll see you there. Monday marked two years since Sir Keir Starmer took over as the new leader of the Labour Party. I remember where I was. Now, had a psychic sat Starmer down before he declared an interest and told him what exactly would transpire over the next two years, <laughs> he might have thought, maybe I should let someone else go next. <laughs> but in the words of Doris Day, the future's not ours to see. All things considered, how is Labour looking? What challenges remain? Let's assess his 24 months in charge. Matt, can I start with you? Yeah. Starmer signed off his acceptance speech in 2020 by saying... I will lead this great party into a new era with confidence and with hope so that when the time comes, we can serve our country again in government. Only, obviously, it was delivered through one nostril. Um, how would you assess him halfway to an election against those aims? I think he's been quite surprising uh, in, in both ways. One, uh, who would have ever thought that Jeremy Corbyn would have the Labour whip removed? and not have it immediately restored, and that that doesn't look like mm -hmm. happening. You know, I, I, I don't think there's ever been a case of an incoming Labour leader removing the whip from their predecessor, and that effectively just will be the case, I presume, at the next general election. In a way, he's done a lot of this stuff quite quietly. I think it's almost certainly true now, and I hope it's true, that there are less racists in the Labour Party than they were when Keir Starmer took over, and that is a good thing. So I think a lot of the... I think he's one of those people that... Um, because he's very reasonable and calm on the exterior, people may underestimate him a little bit. Um, so I think he's actually been quite 
radical in kicking out some of the harsher elements of the, of, of the hard left and, and particularly those elements that were anti-Jewish racists. However, I'm an unashamed Blairite for people who don't know. And my view is that Labour only wins when it is absolutely on the centre-left. I think there is absolutely no way Labour can win to the left of that. So even though Keir Starmer is moving the Labour Party absolutely in the right direction, I mean, it's the first time the Labour Party can say since Gordon Brown, they definitely have the better candidate for Prime Minister. And I think that's reflected in the polling. And I don't think we should underestimate, on the back of Jeremy Corbyn, whether that's by default or not, that is huge progress for the Labour Party, not just on the back of Corbyn, on the back of Miliband as well. It's actually a revolution that Labour Party has picked someone that would be a good Prime Minister. It's been a while. So that's all positive, and he's moving the Labour Party in the right way, and that's all positive. But what defined the new Labour era was the relentless drive every morning that Blair, Brown, Campbell, Mandelson, every member of that project have to wake up in the morning and think about how do you win that day in order to win the next general election. And I don't always get the sense that Labour is currently animated by that same drive and determination to, to blow the Tories out of the water at the next general election. And I think it's all well and good kicking out the racists. And I mean, that's just a default position. I think he also needs to say we have moved on from the politics of Corbyn. It wasn't just the anti-Semitism that was a problem. It was this fantasy list, politics that just wasn't realistic. And I think until you have effectively a clause four moment where he addresses the country directly and says, we have moved on in every regard from the Corbyn years, I think the public are still going to be where the polling shows where they are, which is they sort of think he's all right, but they're not ready to vote Labour again. So what you're saying is that should he be more centrist economically, less radical? I mean, what is it in what is being the offering at the moment that you think fails that brief to be in the centre? The problem is with this stuff is this has to be visible. The public need to actually hear it. And you need to be constantly saying things over and over and over again. So we know that Keir Starmer is more pro-business than, than Jeremy Corbyn, but that needs to be explicit. I think in terms of policy terms, be more radical with the public sector in the way, and I know they're controversial, but things like academies, and Labour needs to rediscover that radical approach towards the public sector that isn't just about tax and spend and come up with creative ideas about how to refresh the public sector, twinned with investment but show that it actually has ideas beyond, oh, we'll just tax the rich more and just pump money into systems that, you know, effectively, we're not going to reform. Um, mm. So I think it's about that. And, and talk about modern issues. And like, for, Labour was stuck in the 70s at the last election. It was all about nationalising rail and energy and all this sort of thing. Nothing about automation, nothing about tech. And I just think these are the big things that are coming down the line. And, uh, and one of the things that Labour does when it wins is talk about the future rather than the past. And I think Labour, since Blair, has been stuck in the past. OK, Ros, um, how have the polls moved, do you think? Is it enough at this stage where, where they are? Or is the should-have-been-20-points-ahead brigade right? Well, it would be nice if Labour were 20 points ahead, but... Labour, you know, are currently five points ahead, and that's that's 25 points ahead of where they were at their lowest point under Corbyn, which is an achievement. Um, there was a very slight boost for for uh, Johnson after the invasion of Ukraine, um, but it hasn't doesn't seem to have stuck around because foreign policy, as Johnson is finding, doesn't really win elections. People always cite the Falklands, but the Falklands was a very exceptional situation because it was mm -hmm. profoundly tied up with issues of British identity and Ukraine is not. With the local elections in particular, it will be down to 
particular regions. And I think there's every chance that Starmer can build up a momentum, as we saw in that North Shropshire campaign, Mm. where people thought, yes, we can send a message to the Tories by voting for this candidate. And that's what they did. And I think when when people uh, think, yes, my vote will actually do something, yes, my vote, even if it isn't explicitly aimed at supporting Keir Starmer, it's going to send a message to Downing Street. I think that's a potentially very powerful momentum that Mm. you can build on. And there's the local elections coming up. Now, we've been identifying them as a potential danger point for Johnson for some months now because of Partygate and all of that. Mm. But could they also be dangerous for Starmer if Labour does really poorly? Could he find himself struggling? It's all a matter of degree. I mean, if he does really badly, which I don't think he will, yes. There is always a faction in Labour which is extremely keen for Corbyn or a successor to Corbyn to come back and move the Labour Party definitively to the left. And they will argue that this is the exact right time for that because of the uh, way that ordinary people are suffering and the poverty is growing and it now or never and it will be all that all over again. We, We will see that undoubtedly unless there is a strong Labour showing. I don't think, however, that Starmer has historically paid much attention to social media and Twitter in particular, I don't think he is very interested in, in what they are saying. And I think Labour has started to get a taste again for being ahead in the polls. Mm, mm. Starmer hasn't been in office for that long. He's still got plenty of opportunity and time. And, you know, for a lot of that time, it was the pandemic and he had precious little opportunity to actually set out policy agenda because mm. the media were overwhelmingly focused on what the government was doing and yeah, saying. Yeah. So he's had relatively little time to, to show his hand and prove himself. And to get rid of him now would be, I would be extremely surprised if, if I mean, it's possible that they might turn to somebody who perhaps they see as more media friendly, like Wes Streeting, but I don't think yet. I don't mm. think at this point. Ian, in 2020, Starmer also said, and to all our members, supporters and affiliates, I say this, whether you voted for me or not, I will represent you, I will listen to you and I will bring our party together. Has he stayed true to that pledge? No. (laughs) He was quite a deceptive campaigner for the leadership. I mean, even if you like what he's... I mean, I'm glad he was deceptive. He said what he needed to say. He said exactly what he needed to say. Matt Matt will be delighted. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, there is... When you hear that sort of Corbynite charge of, well, he basically just pulled one on us and, you know, campaigned as a sort of telegenic Corbyn guy and rules as a Blairite, you just think... Well, that's that's correct. That, yeah, that is true. That is what true. you've just said is true. And, and that's exactly what he did. To be fair, some of that was forced on him, I think, by the Corbyn decision after the anti-Semitism report. Like, I think a lot of this comes down to that moment. It was almost minutes after the report comes out. You know, and he says in his speech, responding to it, Starmer, it's not just about the anti-Semitic statements themselves. It's about saying that they're a media conspiracy, that they're made up. If you do that, that is in and of itself part yep, of the problem. Yep. And then for Corbyn to come out and say precisely fucking that kind of forced his hand. And I think that forced his hand. I don't think he wanted to be in a situation where he was removing the vote from him. It doesn't make his life easier in any meaningful way. But he just had to do it. Hmm. And once he did... 
all of those problems in labor ossified into the tribal encampments, which they anyway are quite likely yeah. to do in factional labor. So there's not much you could do. But I mean, you look at the people around him, sort of Sam White, chief of staff, you know, worked for, for um, Darling uh, under the last labor government. Deborah Matson, head of strategy, um, who was a poster under Brown. Or even Philip Collins, the speech, who we presume does the better speeches on the basis of the fact that they're really fucking good. So I'm pretty sure Philip Collins wrote them. They are coming from a faction within the Labour Party. Starmer, by the way, I don't think really belongs to that faction or any other. He's not really steeped in Labour politics in that way. And he's not actually doesn't seem to me to be that political a guy, as, as, as weird as that is to say. But I think the people that he's surrounded with now, if not for lack of better options, given the way it broke out, are really in a certain faction of Labour. And that's the way that they're ruling the party at the moment. I think it's better for it, but it's certainly not what he promised during the campaign. Mm. What about the party's financial standing? We know that membership has waned. Um, if unions withdraw support and big business doesn't step up, how will Labour finance a general election campaign? Oh, no, they'd be, they're quite fucked, actually. Um, I mean, not, for, not least because of the legal cases on anti-Semitism, costing a huge amount of money to, to the party. Membership, yes, is down. Under Corbyn, there were simply no high net worth individual donors, like none, that he reduced it to zero. Mm. Right? And so, so you're basically just out there relying on trade unions, who are not people that you really want to rely on if you're a centrist Labour leader. <laughs> so now... The people that they're going to. So look, they have a three-pronged strategy. Number one, membership, lots of small donations. Number two, trade unions. We know those parts. Number three is you go back again to that sort of Blairite period of talking to high net worth donors. And among them, you know, for instance, I mean, they're talking to Fran Perrin, who's the daughter of Lord Sainsbury, who basically bankrolled Tony Blair for a decade to the tune of, I think, 10 and a half million quid. And I suspect, given the polls are where they are, that probably that will work out for them. But the finances are tenuous. And I think one of the reasons Labour wouldn't want a general election too quickly right now is because the finances are very tenuous. Mm. Um, and, and it's a very competitive market as well. You can buy the prime minister for a couple of rolls of wallpaper. <laughs> Why should you donate millions to someone else? Um, Just undercut him. Just like, go, I'll do it for one roll. I'll do it for one roll of wallpaper. <laughs> Last week, Labour's NEC prescribed three more groups, Alliance for Workers' Liberty, the Labour Left Alliance and the Socialist Labour Network. They sound lovely. (laughs) Why have they been kicked out? Different reasons. So the last two, Socialist Labour Network and Labour Left Alliance, that's part of the anti-Semitism dispute. I mean, the first one's a merger from Labour Against the Witch Hunt and Labour in Exile, these nonsense groups. Uh, And the second one has close links to organisations that were already banned by the NEC, the National Executive Committee, last summer. The third one... I find really interesting, the Alliance for Workers' Liberty, because that's not to do with anti-Semitism. They are a bona fide, old-school, Trotskyist, entryist organisation. Oh, oh. I fucking love that. It makes me feel young again. It's been, like, it's been years. Has anyone talked about Trotskyist entryism? But apparently they're fucking bona fide. They've got newspapers. They've got, like, an organisational structure. I was like, oh, fuck, I'd love to read more about that. <laughs> it's like listening to Britpop. Matt, um, has Starmer's stance of largely supporting the government over the pandemic response worked for him as a whole, do you think? Yes, I think it has. And I think it's partly because that's authentically what he believes and that's very important in politics to actually do what you actually think is right and the public get a sense of that. And also, that's where the public were. I mean, it's just the reality of the situation is when a situation like this hits, it's not just that the media are concentrating on the government. You have to understand how people's minds work, which is at the start of a pandemic... 
They are literally petrified that they are going to die and the people they care about the most are going to die. That is like their number one thing. They couldn't give a toss what's going on in the Labour Party. Keir Starmer was squeezed out by that, and that's obviously been a challenge for him, but he was absolutely right to support the government because, in a way, you're not just supporting the government. You're not saying, I agree with the political direction of Boris Johnson. You're saying, I'm supporting our National Health Service, I'm supporting our civil service, I'm supporting our frontline public sector staff. So I think the alternative to that would have been suicide, particularly as it followed a man in Jeremy Corbyn whose whole identity was, I'm just going to do the opposite of what the Tories do. That's just not credible. So I think as difficult as it was for him, it was absolutely the right thing to do. And I think that gave him a a kind of grounding of credibility on which he can now be more political. I think he's earned the right. I think he's carved out for himself a certain niche as a national figure that can be trusted so that when he can be more explicitly political now, people are more likely to go with him. Hmm. Rose, um, how clear do you think Labour's vision under Starmer is? What should they be doing going forward? I mean, could you summarise it for a foreign friend in a pub, which is, I think, quite a good test? Could you tell them what Labour stand for right now? I certainly think I find that easier than I did would a few months ago. And hmm. that's because Labour has gone very, very heavy on the cost of living, which is, I think, the right approach at the moment. Uh, that is going to be the major focus. I mean, I don't think at this point Labour should, you know, if you like, throw away its shot on putting forward some huge manifesto just ahead of the local elections. The local elections are not the place for your huge manifesto. <laughs> you know, yeah. it is... Stop pouring shit in our rivers, we'll do it. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's where it's going to be very much the Lib Dem campaign. I think yes. that, that's going to be their focus. But... As the cost of living crisis gets more urgent, and it is getting really urgent now with inflation up, with bills up, the less people are necessarily interested in a vision, especially ahead of local elections. Things like NHS waiting lists, cancer waiting lists are longer than they have ever been. Mm. There are, I think, six million people now waiting for some kind of treatment on the on the NHS. That is the kind of thing that makes people very unhappy and it makes them very angry with the government. And the best thing that Labour can do at the moment is exploit that anger and say, use your vote at the local elections to express how furious you are with this government. And we are ready for government. And at the next general election, we will set out exactly how we'll change that. But the thing he's actually pushing at the moment very heavily at PMQs is the idea that Labour is on your side. Labour is on the working person's side. And I think that is the right focus. Tories are now in a place where they look like a government that could help, but choose not to. Yesterday's revelation that... Uh, Richie Sunak has been giving at least £10,000 a year to Winchester College, his alma mater, is an example of this. This is a this is a charity donation that he has chosen to make to one of the least deserving charities <laughs> in the whole of the country at a time when people are struggling. And there are hundreds, thousands of charities that he would benefit from. And he chooses to give £10,000 to his own old school so that a couple of middle-class kids can get in more easily. Mm. So, you know, Labour should not throw away their jot on these local elections, but their positioning, which is that we are by side of people who are struggling now, is the right one. Ian, last question. We are very much the Progressive Alliance posse here. Um, But I'm going to play devil's advocate and say... Now that Labour are doing all right in the polls, does that change the calculation? Why should they go 
cap in hand for a progressive alliance to parties like the Lib Dems and the Greens when there's a chance they could actually win power? To be honest, I don't think that's the key. Th- the key thing for me is always is the Corbyn bit. Because as soon as you take away Labour being scary, Lib Dem tempted voters in places like Winchester. <laughs> mm. um, in, you know, these, the, the few seats is about 20 seats, maybe uh, 30 if you're lucky. Um, Lib Dem Tory marginals will vote, will be more likely to vote Lib Dem, especially if they really don't like what the Tory government's up to. So once that becomes the case, it's quite tempting for Labour and the Lib Dems to have a chat. And let's just be clear. They've clearly had a fucking chat. Like, there is no way. You, the, the hints couldn't be more obvious, even if you were watching, like, an Agatha Christie thing, that these guys have talked, <laughs> right? And they are standing down for each other in places that they think the other party can win. And, you know, with the Lib Dems, that's not a lot of seats, but it's a few seats, right? And it saves Labour resources, which, again, back to the money, doesn't have that much money to do. It saves the Lib Dem, uh, the Lib Dems uh, money as well. They've clearly had that chat. It's clearly a tactic that they're pursuing. And I think we should be quite happy with that. It should be perfectly effective for what they need it to do. And I do think that we're entitled to be pretty chuffed about the way that Ed Davey and Keir Starmer clearly are chatting, clearly are getting on and clearly working together. Okay. Looking to Europe, in another victory for populism on the continent, Viktor Orban won Hungary's election to take on another term, his fourth consecutive and fifth overall. It was a landslide victory, giving Orban's Fidesz a two-thirds majority, and he was running quite literally against everyone else. (laughs) Ian, Orban has been accused of gerrymandering, stacking the judiciary with loyalists, seizing control of the media. Is this at the root of how he achieved this, or is it a way for progressives to self-soothe and deny his real popularity? I don't know if progressives have been self-soothing. Maybe I just surround myself with masochist liberals, but (laughs) everyone I know has just been like, fuck, I'm going to tear the face off my own head (laughs) if I have to look at the news anymore. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't think that's what it is. I think it's a bit like looking at the Putin thing, where you just think, it's the, the election results at this point are, are. Arthur Snell said it during our live show. It's like they're impressionistic, right? You yeah. know, there's probably enough there that you can say it. Maybe it's somebody that reflects a certain amount. We can't really fucking tell, but we presume that there is, you know, some level of that. We presume that Putin probably could probably still win, maybe a legitimate election in Russia. We presume the same for Orban, but we can't fucking know. You absolutely cannot know. I mean, to give you an impression of, we say buying up media, Orban directly, not through, it used to be up until three years ago, it used to be through various front organizations and his oligarch network. Now he directly controls almost all the media, certainly all the TV, all the radio, cooking magazine. I spoke to a journalist um, in Hungary who said that that her friend is is a cooking journalist and that actually they put a Fidesz loyalist okaying the cooking columns, the bakery columns that they would have in the magazine, local radio, sports papers. I mean, it is full spectrum control. He controls, you know, where you can put political adverts on the side of roads. I mean, it is the entirety of the information ecosystem. Mm. So in that scenario, it is a it's perfectly realistic and legitimate to say this is just not a you can't really say this is a fair election. We can't conclude too much from it. But also you say that he did that for a fucking reason. And the results that we see now probably speak to it. Maybe he would have done it differently. I certainly don't think he would have got the supermajority without that level of almost tyrannical control over information in Hungary. Mm. All the opposition parties rallied together in an attempt to, uh, to unseat Fidesz. Um, but in doing so, did they end up just making the election about him? 
did they end up making it you either want this guy or you don't, rather than policies or what's going on in Hungary? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, remember that they tried the alternative three <laughs> times now. You know, the, the alternative clearly doesn't work either. Um, we know that when you look at the sort of far right who came into the anti um, into the anti Orban coalition, the far right party job has sort of been moving into a more centrist right position because it's monopolized by Fidesz, Orban's party. But two thirds of their voters looks like they went to Orban as, as it's drifted to the side. So they couldn't keep their voters on board. But the really pronounced measure seems to have been the war. And that is not playing out how we'd think or hope or wish it to play out. It's played out by Orban going... I will defend the peace. I am the peacemaker. I stopped us getting dragged into war and the opposition saying this is about whether we're East or West and Orban's argument uh, won out. I mean, I think for me, that was kind of why I couldn't, I was really struggling to maintain my kind of moral composure because it was, it's partnered with the images coming out of Buka. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you just think he's fucking, not only is he not being punished for this shit, this Putin apologist defender and someone who explicitly attacks the Ukrainian president. Not only is he not being punished, but he's actually profiting off the sadism that he himself has helped create. Mm. And w- will that um, resounding victory embolden him, Roz, to speak even more in favour of his benefactor, Putin? Maybe. It's not entirely clear, to be honest, because as Ian says, he's playing a very triangulating game. So mm. what he's, the thing he's done most recently is he's just criticised Zelensky for alleging that Hungarians support Russia. And his line now is, don't accuse uh, Hungarians of supporting Russia. Many of, uh, many of them don't. Don't, you know, put words into our mouths. That's, it, it's a very interesting triangulation that he's trying to achieve mm. there. It's not a simple, completely simple pro-Russian position, although undoubtedly, it, you know, behind the scenes, that's what's going on. They are in Russia's pocket in many ways because his party is in Russia's pocket and the whole gas issue, Hungary, Hungary is very dependent, like Germany, on Russian gas. And in fact, today it has said it will now pay for Russian gas in rubles. That's breaking. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's pay. That's breaking with the EU line, yeah. which is the first time that it's done so. And of course, that's very, very good news for Putin. Yeah, but then in the same press conference, he also said. Um, you know, Russia's invasion is an act of aggression. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. of course, they should withdraw the troops and that's the EU position and we're fully on board with it. So there's yeah. that, that yeah. you and know, mixed messaging. Again, exactly. And, you know, it's it's that that makes it, trying to avoid being pinned down in that way is very much what he's, he's hoping to do. And, of course, the European Com- Commission chief, Ursula von der Leyen, now is trying to link the rule of law in Hungary to cash in terms of EU funding. And that is a calculated risk because it does, there is the possibility that he could say, I don't want your cash. Um, I don't need it. And basically take money off Putin instead. Matt, on that, hours after the results became clear, Ursula von der Leyen announced the EU would be taking financial action against Hungary for its violations of the rule of law. So they're basically linking the payments they make to how Hungary behaves constitutionally. Is there a danger that it will be seen as interference and and sort of backfire? It is a risk, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. And obviously, that's exactly the sort of thing that Orban's going to say. But the problem is, is you have a choice, really, as Western liberal democracies, is do you take action or don't you? And part of the problem, part of the reason we're in the situation we're in is that Putin, for a prolonged period of time now, 
has basically got away with murdering people on British soil, what he did in Ukraine in 2014, let alone Chechnya and all these other things. And we've been far too timid for fear of how mm. it's going to be represented in, in other parts of the world. And I think it's long overdue that you take action against Putin and his allies because we've tried doing it the other way and look where we are. Drawing a, a very faint parallel to the UK government's behaviour, although obviously nowhere near Orban's excesses, our government has shown a disregard for the rule of law. It is interfering with our media. It is trying to weaken the judiciary and strengthen the police. And it has proposed quite worrying reforms to electoral law. Do you think we are the frog in a gently warming pot or, or is it an overreaction to worry? I don't think it's an overreaction to worry because if you don't worry, you know, the danger is that you do end up in a situation where, I mean, look at, for instance, our inaction on Syria and the warnings around at the time about where mm. that would end. We were right to worry and we were right to be concerned that this would happen. So I don't think when you, you know, you, you apply that logic elsewhere, I think it's always correct to be vigilant and to worry. Now, obviously, the danger is you go, oh, well, we're completely different to Hungary or pick your international example. And whatever you think of Boris Johnson and, and the Tories, they're clearly not going to try and do that. The danger is, as you saw with Ed Miliband changing the rules of the Labour leadership contest or as not getting involved in Syria, you set policy in a particular direction and it's very hard to turn that direction down once you establish something like say voter id then what happens next some of those changes may sound modest now if you don't stop them now you're gonna have a harder job stopping it once the british public say well actually we, we already got this and it works so i think mm. you're right to be vigilant at the start of these things um ian one last thing elsewhere in europe serbian president alexander vucic has cruised to a landslide re-election. He's the leader of the Serbian Progressive Party, but don't let that name fool you. He's another Putin-friendly right-wing populist. Um, the last couple of years saw a sort of recovery of more moderate parties. Is this a bucking of that trend? Is it an aberration? Or is just the former Eastern Bloc an entirely different political landscape that defies lumping it in with the rest of Europe? No, well, I mean, look, we're, pretty soon we're going to be talking a lot about fucking France, you know, and even if Macron wins, yeah. we're still going to be like, well, that looked way too close for a far right person to take one of the most important countries in the world, you know. For us, we always think of the trends, right? You know, Biden comes in and you're like, oh, maybe everything's shit. Maybe everything's going to be OK. <laughs> you know, all this time that we spent talking about populism, maybe everything's going to be fine. I mean, it's not that simple. And when you look at history, like for any period over 10 years, 20 years, what you see is one movement, one direction, a slight retreat a smite jagger and it's in a much broader perspective that you see the trend at the moment we're right in the thick of it and i think because of biden and because things have calmed down here slightly it's still a terrible fucking government it's a fundamentally populist one that as you just said and i think you said rightly you know does many like a sort of ribena cordial version of the full flavored stuff that orban yeah. does you know it's easy for us to start getting complacent the trick will be how does the cost of because cost of living is going to hit everywhere how does inflation hit and who is there to exploit it? I mean, here we will see that Starmer is most likely to be able to politically exploit that. In lots of other countries, that won't be the case. It will be more complex than that. And it'll be a pretty mercurial picture for the next few years. And I just think on a human level, this shit's addictive. I think once you begin to cross mm -hmm. lines and get mm -hmm. your claws in institutions and grease the system a little bit to make re-election a little bit easier, it's so much... Um, so much easier to slide down that mm -hmm. slope, basically. Mm -hmm. 
Back on home soil, Nadine Doris has announced that she's putting Channel 4 up for sale. She may not have known how it was funded a few months ago in front of a parliamentary committee, but she has ideas how it should be funded in the future. She feels that government ownership is holding the channel back from competing against streaming giants like Netflix and Amazon. Funny she mentions it because Channel 4 streaming service actually has more UK users than Amazon Prime Video and is not in any sort of debt like Netflix. Ian, is there a cogent plan here that actually has to do with changing the media landscape in some identifiable way, even an evil one? Or has the government just found a left-wing sensitivity that they just kick every time they are in trouble? Um, I mean, I, I don't think they have a coherent plan. Um, I, ha- I haven't really talked to anyone in Parliament or actually in the media, including at Channel 4, who doesn't think that it's a revenge attack. I mean, everyone just assumes, and that's right, and incidentally, yeah, yeah. I mean, you sort of suggested that right at the height of, of Channel 4, that's exactly what they presume it is. Um, that goes back really to the to the Brexit period, um, I think the 2019 general election. We forget now but that there was a really, really interesting interview with Michael Gove and a Channel 4 news reporter when he was asking about how many hospitals he planned to build. And Michael Gove sort of said, you're just saying labor lines right now. We know exactly what you're doing. You're making a left-wing polemical case. And that was pretty indicative of how the Tories thought of kind of any And then a coverage. boycott. There was a boycott for several months of right. Channel 4 news by ministers. And Doris herself has been made to look, not that it's difficult, no. but she's been made to look particularly stupid by Christian Gurumurthy. Christian Gurumurthy is a very fine interviewer, but I suspect that the real analysis of that situation is that Channel 4 News happened to be holding the camera where <laughs> Nadine Doris <laughs> was, yes. <laughs> rather than his great skills as an interrogator. So, yeah, I mean, look, th- that's all there. I think that then chimes with this instinctive Tory response of why would anything be publicly owned? Mm. You know, and, but, that, but that's interesting, right? Because that's the old school Tory shit right there. That's not the new school stuff. The new school stuff after Brexit was supposed to be, you know, maybe privatization and conservatism with a small C, you know, aren't these easy bedfellows. And maybe it kind of chisels away at communities and we need this whole thing. That was a big threat to sort of liberals and progressive Tories thinking that way, coming onto the territory. This is just the old school stuff. Why? Why should anything be publicly owned? And I think those two things have sort of come together and they think, you know, you can do this and most people won't give a fuck, which incidentally, I think is true. Ros, Tory MPs like Damien Green, Peter Bottomley have come out against the decision, uh, noting Mrs. Thatcher would never make this mistake. Who's actually driving this in government? I mean, who is the, the intellectual force behind this? <laughs> Well, there is no intellectual force behind it. I mean, Nadine Doris is behind it, so clearly there is no intellectual force behind it. I mean, no, uh, Thatcher would not have made that mistake because it was she who actually set up Channel 4. Uh, it was with a mission to uh, create a publicly funded, culturally challenging, you know, fourth channel back in back in 1984. And what she wanted was the word. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she made her own grave diggers there. Yeah, Fuck yeah. knows how it worked out. Well, I mean, this is, this is interesting, though, because... We've had all the arguments over the BBC licence fee and the big Tory line there is that you can't tax people and force them to pay for media that they don't consume. Clearly, this is a different level because Channel 4, while it's publicly owned, as Doris has recently found out, is not publicly funded. So that (laughs) argument is no longer in play. 
So it has to have an ideological element, but I think to almost say that it has an ideological element is almost to endow it with too much credibility. I, I think it is partly a revenge attack, as Ian says. It's partly because it's an easier target than the BBC. Yeah, exactly. The BBC is a monolith. People are attached to it in many ways. People are less attached to Channel 4, and therefore it's almost easier pickings. If you want to make a splash and show what you can do, then and why not go for Channel 4? Matt, um, Julian Knight, who is a Tory chair of the DCMS committee, as Ian indicated, has basically put it on record that there's an element of payback in this for the way Channel 4 News covered Brexit and the Tory government. But what are they hoping for? Do they hope that a privatised Channel 4 will just sack Christian Guru Murthy and Kathy Newman and pivot to the hard right because GB News proved that such a verdant, <laughs> there's a lot of viewership there. I mean, what, what are they hoping this will result in? God knows. I mean, I'm not even sure they'd win a vote on the floor of the House of Commons if this happened tomorrow. So I'm not sure what the likelihood of it is. I think there'll be a significant Tory backlash against it when she, and when you add that to, to obviously people in other parties. I mean, at the root of it, quite apart from the desire to have it as a wedge issue and a distraction and all the rest of it and, and a revenge mission, the idea that Channel 4 is in any way, or any of our so-called linear broadcasters, are in any way comparable to purely online things like Netflix they are fundamentally different things. Yes, Channel 4 and the BBC have 4OD or whatever it's called. And, you know, there's the ITV yeah. hub, which is terrible. And the iPlayer. You wouldn't <laughs> want... Channel 4 does news. It does live events and things like that. It's a totally yeah. different type of televisual experience. On some level, it competes with Netflix. But unless... I mean, to be honest, this idea that Netflix is the shining example. They make a few good box sets every year. I spend most of my time on Netflix flicking through it, going, seen mm. it, look shit, look shit, seen it. I don't want to do that with Channel 4. You know, it's different. It's a fundamentally different thing. And it has, because mm. it's a public service broadcaster, it has to fulfill certain remits. And it's also important that it is free to air. I mean, Amazon Prime is the other one you mentioned. Barely anyone watches it. Yeah. Channel 4 is a massive deal for a number of reasons. And this idea that every broadcaster in the UK should be reduced to competing with Disney Plus and HBO Max and whatever the, all the other things you're supposed to have are, I, I, don't think the, I don't think that's how the British public see it. And I don't think that's how most politicians see it either. You sound remarkably like a nan. Um, <laughs> I don't know what this... I don't want this rubbish on my box. <laughs> um, meanwhile, the scandal that never ends, Partygate, rumbles on. We don't know exactly who's been fined, but we know they've been fined. Um, Ros Welsh Secretary Simon Hart has joined the many Conservative MPs who insist the world has moved on, but Ipsos polling out Wednesday shows 52% think Johnson should resign if fined, including 30% of Tory voters, with only 22% saying he shouldn't. Why is there this perception gap? Why do they think their country's moved on when the country clearly hasn't? Yeah, the country clearly hasn't. I mean, people have not got with the new world order that Johnson is trying to put in place. They are still <laughs> clinging on to the idea in the ministerial code that says that ministers should resign if they break the law. And there have been ministers who've resigned if they've broken the, broken the law. I mean, there was a long time ago, Chris Hune, you may remember that, in the mm. coalition government, he uh, resigned because he uh, got caught for speeding. Damien Green, he misled police over porn on his computer. 
uh, he had to resign too. Uh, but and people are understandably uneasy about setting this new precedent. Because I mean, in this environment, you'd put that on your fucking CV, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah. Instead of, instead <laughs> of resigning for report. it. Um, if you make the law, you know, you should not break the law. And I think there is still in many people's minds uh, a feeling that it is unacceptable. Yeah. Of course, there has been the effort by Jacob Rees-Mogg and his acolytes to claim that it's just like a speeding fine or a parking ticket or lockdown, lockdown rules, not lockdown law, and trying to reframe it. But I'm, I'm not People just aren't buying it yet. They haven't yet got with the new program, mm. and hopefully they won't. Imagine being Chris Hume. <laughs> Imagine just you must just sit there watching this be like, "What the fuck?" I go. Matt, the the Telegraph has published the name of Helen McNamara, the former government ethics chief, who's been fined for one of the parties. There's also rumours that the karaoke machine used at one party belonged to Sue Gray. Is Johnson's plan to just have sympathetic papers pin this on civil servants who cannot publicly defend themselves? It might be his plan. I don't think it will work in the, in the eyes of the public. The advantage he had that any leader had during the pandemic was that all focus was on them and they could command TV audiences in the tens of millions because we were petrified and we looked to our leaders for guidance. That obviously has a benefit. The downside of that is anything bad that happens in that period is directly on you in the public's mind. And this is all about his personal behaviour. And I think other political issues you may be able to get away with. I think he has totally underestimated how livid people are that they were partying when people couldn't go to funerals of loved ones and all the other sacrifices people made. I think he is totally out of touch with the anger and the hurt and just the just how insulting this is to people. Whether there's ever a political price to pay for this electorally is another matter. I mean, the other thing I should say is, I just find karaoke horrible. I mean, I'm just, I'm a very, whenever anyone says, oh, let's go and do karaoke, I just think, oh, fuck off. Why can't we just go to like a normal pub and keep talking? Why do you have to, we don't do this with any other art form. No one ever says, oh, we have a few beers, we get a machine out, and then we dub over one of our favorite films for an hour and a half. Why do we have to sing I over would love just that. put the normal version on? Not too loud. I would completely be up for that. <laughs> <laughs> also, like dubbing out, or like get pissed and paint portraits. Yeah, do dead man totally shoes for now and No, no, this is Matt. You're fucking everything up here. We, <laughs> Alex and I only just, and this literally just happened the other day. We've only just convinced Roz to go do karaoke. <laughs> you have Roz not convinced me to do karaoke. <laughs> you didn't object. You, I, I did. I really object very vociferously. I didn't hear that. <laughs> I, I, um, we no. haven't so much convinced her as announced to her that she is doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and there is no reason, to my mind, why I should have to do it no, because I'm totally at one with uh, Matt on this one. It is it is a travesty, but we can discuss all this I later. feel we are straying into the territory yes. of the extra <laughs> item. Um, so one final thing to wrap this up. The, the monthly Conservative Home Members poll is out for much today. Rishi Sunak is now second from bottom <laughs> with a barely positive rating of 8%. <laughs> Um, down Get from someone that looks at you the way that Matt Ford looks at Rishi Sunak's poll rating since the spring statement. Now that's down from him being second with seventy five percent positive rating this time last year. Priti Patel is on minus fourteen, down from positive fifty last year. Even Liz Truss has slipped from the top where she was on eighty seven percent to fourth on sixty percent. Have the last few months, Ian, 
actually been more about Johnson dealing with his rivals rather than the party's electoral position. Did we kind of miss something going on here? <laughs> no. No, it's worse than that for them. It's that they're just dissolving into nothing. Because <laughs> it's really like he, I, I remain of the view that he is sort of, he's pretty permafucked at this point. Like, I mean, really, yeah. it, I, I don't think he can get past the kind of damage he's taken. And yet, so suddenly then the eye of, you know, the political eye of Sauron turns to each, each contender, you know, in, in turn. And looks at them and they just wilt in the fucking light. Like they're all, you know, I mean, in terms of ideas, in terms of intellectual capacity, in terms of presentational ability, in terms of just basic political know-how, they're fucking awful, all of them. This is what happens if you put in cabinet, I mean, maybe this will defend them. If you put in cabinet a bunch of yes men whose, ma- whose chief reason for being there is not competence, but the th- that, that they won't threaten you and, you know, will, will sing all the praises, then that's what you get. You get people that in the eye of Sauron, they, they wilt. And that's pretty much exactly what we're seeing right now. And Marie Trevelyan is soaring. So maybe that's the position you need to be in <laughs> to go for yet. the leadership. You know, the, the copy and paste, <laughs> I did a trade deal with this rock in Fiji uh, position. Liz Truss must be furious, though, that uh, Johnson, you know, this war has come along and Johnson has basically jumped on it and completely furious. sidelined her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you see that photo of her? You know, with fur, fur hat, she looks furious. <laughs> Fuming she was in the Red Square. <laughs> Before we go, let's take a look at those stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve uh, in our regular feature, Under the Radar. Ian, what's yours? Brian Paddock has managed to secure fucking, I mean, lucky us, an act of resistance against the statutory instrument on Napier Barracks. So stay with me. okay? so Napier Barracks, from Army Barracks, is now used to house asylum seekers and can be for up to six months. When that first happened, you know, the suggestion was this is just we need the accommodation. Okay, now the nationalities bill has been published and we can see what it actually is, which is Napier functions as a pilot scheme for punishment accommodation against asylum seekers who arrive here by an irregular route that is in the bill. Clearly, that's why it's there. The government used a statutory instrument to try and overrule planning permission problems that it was having, namely that it had never got planning permission for the change of function of the barracks and that there already was planning permission to build housing there. Fortunately, statutory instruments, which in a way that really shouldn't be functional in a working democracy, can't be properly challenged really in the Commons or the Lords. You've got a couple of options in the Lords. Excuse the language, but it's just... We have a constitutional arrangement that's basically made out of fucking cobwebs and candle wax. But you can either pray against it, that's one way to defeat it, or you can put a regret motion, which doesn't really do anything. Paddock, I mean, this is the most resistance we've been able to see in a legislative basis. Paddock's put down a regret motion. You'll notice the way that this is months after it's been done. The government deigns to offer a vote on the statutory instrument and that it's done in the Lords during recess and the most that can be achieved is that we can put a regret motion which wouldn't even end it down but at least Brian Paddock to his considerable credit has put that down so at least there can be some statement of protest even if there's nothing that can be done that can change what the Home Office is doing Hmm. We regret Pretty Patel Um, Rose, what's yours? Uh, This is less than under the radar than a sort of public service announcement but I thought it was really, really important nonetheless You might be wondering if you're uh, an EU citizen 
um, and you arrived in this country and you have been able to vote in local elections in the past, which you may not have been aware of, but you have been able to vote in them, whether you can still do so now that we have definitively Brexited. And the answer is yes, you can. Yes, I got my polling card. Yeah, if you arrived before the end of 2020. Um, then you then you can. After that, if you arrived after 2020, it gets really complicated. Did you know, Alex? I didn't, no. Well, what happens, basically, we are now in the process of negotiating bilateral deals with each EU country oh, because yeah. some of these EU countries have decided that uh, UK citizens living there shouldn't be residents, shouldn't be allowed to vote in their elections. And if they're not, then we're going to take our revenge by not letting our uh, their citizens here oh, uh, vote oh, either. it's just so idiotic. So isn't it? if you're, you that's know, just Brexit in a nutshell. So if you're French and you arrived after 2020, you can't vote. If you're Spanish, you can. It, it, it gets oh, nice and complicated. But I just thought I'd flag that that up because uh, it's not as simple as it might seem. How about yours, Matt? So this is something that's gone under the radar in England. I think it's getting a lot of coverage in Scotland, and it's to do with ferries. So it's not so much under the radar as, as perhaps above the sonar. But the Scottish government gave a contract to build ferries for public use to an independent supporter uh, called Mr. McCall. They removed from that contract clauses that would protect the taxpayer in the event that the ferries weren't built or that the shipyard went bust. The shipyard did go bust. They nationalised it. The ferries still haven't been built. Nicola Sturgeon launched one of these ferries in 2017. It still hasn't... Keep Nicola Sturgeon out of your (laughs) fucking mouth. (laughs) (laughs) She launched one of these ferries in 2017. It still isn't ready for use yet. In fact, it was so unready. The one they used at the launch had the wrong shaped hull and the windows weren't real. They were literally painted on. And all these people were given soul ties. I mean, it's off the scale, right? So then now, because there were no protect, because the protection clauses were removed, the bill keeps spiralling. It's already one hundred twenty-five million pounds over budget. They think in the end it will cost the taxpayer four hundred million pounds for ferries they may never get. It's a huge scandal. It's given to an independent supporter. They're now trying to pin it on a minister, an ex-minister called Derek Mackay, who was forced out of the government a couple of years ago. You might remember for sexting young boys. So they're pinning it on this guy that's already gone. It's one of the most incredible stories of political corruption happening in Britain at the moment. In Scotland, everyone's aware of it. Down here, it it doesn't seem to be getting any coverage at all. Interesting. Um, Mine is uh, a piece of research by the Centre for Progressive Policy, I should say. Um, So they've put basically all the data into a big calculator, effectively. The Brexit effect, the COVID help available, the tax hikes going on, the tax allowances going on, all of it. And they've gone local authority by local authority and have looked at which local authorities does it affect worst? And they found that effectively it is making the north-south divide even wider. So this is literally leveling down. Um, and, you know, you stand that side by side, I guess, to uh, the recent report by the Parliamentary Committee on Food that says food is going to be more expensive and it's going to make make us more de- dependent. Um, that is exactly the opposite of what they promised, HS2, the commitment on foreign aid. I mean, it, it's not just failing to meet 
targets that were promised. It's literally delivering the exact opposite to what was in the manifesto. So who knows if people will notice. And that's the show. Thanks to Ian. Thank you. To Roz. Thank you. And to our guest, Matt Ford. Oh, it's been a pleasure, as always. Thank you for having me on. Matt's show, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, is at London's Bloomsbury Theatre on the 23rd of April. And his West End political party continues at the Duchess Theatre on the 18th of April. Stay tuned for our extra bit, exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Matt Batty, Toby Rubinstein, Michael Brown, Karen Zeynep Ak, Mark C, Gus Kantauskas, Ben Budd, Kieran McMonagall, and Rich H. And it's a big thanks from me to Ryan Dolan, Victoria Smith, Graham Potts, Alan Cox, Jed, Russell Holmes, Simon Brunskill, Adam Squires, and Ben Laker. And a huge thanks from me to David Pitcher, Emma, Anthony Jondo, Eamon Merchant, Matt Wood, Candace Brooks, George Terezakis, Laura Offer, and Nigella Lawson. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andre with Roz Taylor and Ian Dunn. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. Producers of Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovic. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Lead producer Jacob Jarvis. And Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, our peek behind the curtain exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, Political Playbook reported that the karaoke machine used in the Downing Street party of June 18th, 2020, originally belonged to, wait for it, Sue Gray herself. As a former pub landlady, it makes sense for her to know how to get the party started. Inspired by all this, we're asking the panel what their karaoke song would be. And what politician would they pick to be their partner? We've already heard some controversial views, but I'm not leaving them an option. Um, let's start with Ian, who I know is more positively disposed. <laughs> yeah, I, fu- <laughs> I fucking love karaoke. Like, because... So obviously I used to hate it when I was growing up because it was the whole sing in front of the whole pub thing. I liked that but then one. You that was better. I used to like no, watching other people no, do that's it. Horrific. That was funny. That's horrific. No, uh, yeah, sure. It's fine if you're watching other people fuck it up. Yeah. But if you then, you know, you know in your heart that at some point your friends are going to fucking drag you up there. <laughs> and that's when it stops being funny because suddenly you're the one in the target. It was when it when you know, there were these Korean places in sort of Soho and it's just like it's a nice small room and you're with your pals and, you know, by this point you're fucking destroyed. And you basically just select the, the song that's most embarrassing for your for your friend and hopefully tailor it specifically <laughs> to their psychological failings and make them sing about them. So the whole thing has a, a really worthwhile friendship dynamic that's to it, I fun. think. Oh, it's fucking... I, I absolutely love that so show. So what do people pick for you most often? I can't remember. Um, yes, you can. <laughs> that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you would like a bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to Backers on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, every Monday morning exclusive to Backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week.